Let's read our text together. Galatians 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right, so we have a chipper little post-Easter passage today. If you guys could turn me down just a little bit up here, thank you. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you today. We thank you for your grace and mercy on our lives, and thank you for this list whereby you've identified things that you are continually in the process of rescuing us from. We pray, Lord, that the works of the flesh would decrease in our lives and that the fruit of the Spirit would increase in our lives. And we pray, Lord, these next couple of weeks as we think about both, that you would grow us in the dimension of walking in, feeding, being led by the Spirit of God so that we could not gratify these desires of the flesh that we just read together. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Okay, basically what we just read is a list of the works of the flesh. And I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the book of Galatians, so let me just give you a reminder of what Paul is talking about in this section of Galatians. Paul is combating the idea that the gospel produces complacent Uh, sinful people. You know, if I'm covered by the grace of God, if the cross of Jesus deals with all of my sins, then doesn't that just mean that I'm going to go on living however I want to live? And Paul's idea or concept is, no, when you become a Christian, the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you. You are made brand new, and the Spirit wants to make you to become more and more like Jesus. And so if you're walking in the Spirit, it is inevitable that you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh ever increasingly as you live the Christian life. And so that's where Paul has been going in this passage of Scripture. Uh, After he says that, though, uh, and tells us about this battle inside of every Christian, that all of us as believers, we have the spirit within us, but we also have the remnant of the old nature, the flesh that is battling against the spirit. After he details that battle, he gets into these descriptions, descriptions of what the flesh will produce in our lives, and then next week, a description on what the Spirit is going to do or will do in our lives. Now, this list of 15 attributes that Paul gave to us here today uh, is not a comprehensive list in Paul's mind. In other words, the list could kind of keep on going. Notice how he said at the end of verse 21, and things like these. All right, so he's, he's got some concepts of what the flesh produces, but in his mind, there's more that the flesh uh, will produce. But having said that, uh, what I think I can point out to you today, and hopefully you'll notice as we go through this, is that there seem to be four distinct categories in Paul's mind, or four buckets that the works of the flesh manifest themselves in, and we're going to think about each one of those buckets today. But before I get into them, 
Um, a question that we should ask is, why would it be good for us to slow down in a passage like this? I mean, this is only three verses. I could do the easy thing of saying, let's cover 12 verses today. Uh, let's move on into chapter 6 today. Let's just quickly cover the works of the flesh and move on. So a question would be, why might it be good for us to slow down in a passage like this? Or maybe put another way, the question would be, Nate, what's wrong with you? Why would you spend a whole Sunday just on this list? I think one reason why we should slow down here is because of a love for God. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Even the band Boston figured out that love is more than a feeling. It's not just a sentiment about God. You know, I, I think highly of him. Love is an action word. And if we love God, then we should want to know what God thinks, what God says, and to live our lives according to his desires. But I think another reason that we should slow down in a passage like this is not just a love for God, but a concern for other people. Jesus went on to say that the second commandment is like the first in that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. You know, you are in some sort of community. It might be a family. It might be a network of friendships. And if you're a Christian, you've been birthed by the Spirit of God into the family of God, the church of God. We're likened to a body in Scripture. What that means is the health of individual body parts impacts the entire uh, body of Christ, the rest of the congregation. So to be conscious of what the flesh is, what it could produce in our lives, is in a sense one of the most loving things that we can do for other people. But I think one other reason I would hold out to say that we should slow down in a passage like this is not just love for God and a care for others, but a healthy concern or care for ourselves. Uh, this list is emblematic of what God is trying to rescue us from. Uh, through the gospel, we're saved from the ultimate penalty of sin and transferred from its power. But this list helps us to see what God will continually try to weed out of our lives. And God does this not because he's a prudish being who is embarrassed by human behavior. That's not God. It's because he's a good father who knows what will hurt us and what will help us. And this list is filled with things that will hurt not just the communities that we're in or his fatherly heart for us, but they will literally hurt, damage our own individual lives. So we have a great motivation for slowing down in a passage like this. One bonus motivation that I would hold out comes from the song that we just sang where we were basically praying for revival. No revival happens in the church without the church taking passages like this more seriously and saying, God, I want holiness in my life. Okay, now before we look at this list, I just wanna remind you, this is the book of Galatians, and it is written to a Galatian church. These are Christians in Paul's mind that he is writing to. Uh, he's thinking that all of the elements in this list, they are capable of entering into. Uh, this is not his list of things that only people outside the church do, but that people who have Jesus will sometimes slip into. 
And so he's trying to tell us we're all susceptible to the things found in this list. Now, by saying that, some of you might be thinking about the last phrase at the end of verse 21, where Paul said, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's think about that uh, verse first before we get into the rest of the list. Most translations translate it, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's an appropriate translation and it fits the text and its context. If it were impossible for Christians to do any of the things in this list, he would not have to write about any of the things in this list. The second half of most of Paul's letters would not be necessary if it was impossible for Christians to carry out some of these things. Instead, what it must mean is that people outside the kingdom of God live and practice these elements. It is their persistent reality. But believers are part of God's kingdom. So why would we want to practice these elements? In a sense, this is like all of the other arguments that Paul the Apostle uses to encourage us in the direction of holiness. He reminds us of who we are in light of the gospel. In fact, last Sunday, uh, I talked to you from Romans chapter six about how because Jesus died, if you're a believer in Jesus, you died. And because Jesus rose, if you're a believer in Christ, uh, you also rose. So that now, just as he is dead to sin and alive to God, so we also, if we're believed in Jesus, are dead to sin and alive to God. Paul's words from Romans, not just my words. But what I didn't mention to you is that when Paul wrote those things, it was his answer to Romans 6 verse 1, the question, should we sin all the more so that grace might abound? In other words, if the gospel is what the gospel is and it saves me, rescues me, and makes me clean in the sight of God, if I'm forgiven in God's sight, then why wouldn't I just indulge any fleshly sinful desire that I have? And Paul's answer to that question was basically because that's not who you are anymore. You're so connected to Jesus, a brand new identity in Jesus here in this terminology, you're part of the kingdom of God. So why would that be your habit or your practice? Why behave as if you aren't in the kingdom when by the grace of God you are? So all of that to say, that's my kind of preamble about this little passage of scripture. Now, like I said, there to me are four categories that Paul is going to deal with, and I'm going to touch on all four of those categories today. Okay, category number one, uh, and I'm going to use the word misalignment for all of these categories. And category number one is sexual misalignment, sexual misalignment. Uh, the first three words of his 15-word list uh, encapsulate this sexual misalignment. He says sexual immorality number one, impurity, number two, and sensuality, number three. Now, these words do overlap in meaning. They overlap in emphasis. They're hard to give a precise, you know, it always means only this. It's just kind of talking about an atmosphere of sexual sin. Uh, but if you were to get down to each word, sexual immorality, the first word, uh, it comes from the Greek word porneia. Uh, it refers to sexual activity of many types uh, between unmarried people or people alone engaging in some kind of sexually immoral activity. Uh, impurity, the second word, 
refers to a broad moral uncleanness through sensual thoughts, sensual words, and sensual deeds that are found outside the context of the sacred confines of marriage. And the third word, sensuality, uh, speaks of uncontrolled sexuality, uh, just an atmosphere that is sensual in nature. Now, by starting here, kind of going here first in his list, Paul is going right after uh, the the Greco-Roman world that the Galatians were swimming in. They were very familiar with this kind of stuff. These aren't ancient people who were like, oh my gosh, I'm so uncomfortable. I can't believe he's talking about these things. This was their everyday experience. They were constantly confronted with behaviors like these and had been rescued by Jesus from behaviors like these. I think it's obvious that we live in a similar time. There are lots of different views about sex in circulation in our time. Uh, Some people treat sex as a a god to be worshipped, a god that defines them, that gives life, that is worthy of devotion. There is no sacrifice uh, that is uh, off limits for, for this area of my life. Some treat sex as a mere facet of nature, It's just a natural thing that we've evolved to do, they might say. And because of that, the grid is it should be pursued for personal gratification. Some treat sex as the expected response to feelings of affection. The second I start feeling close with somebody, I should begin wondering Is there something sexual here? Is there something more here that should be explored? Many friendships and relationships have been ruined by this particular view. And there are many inside the church who have embraced the idea that sex is somehow an unholy activity, that it's dirty, that it's undesirable, that God has nothing to do with it. But the biblical view is that God is the inventor of sex, that he's the creator of sex, that he's the maker of it. This, in a sense, should be so obvious to us because it's so powerful and has such a pull on us that it's almost as if you've got to say it has a divine origin. God made it to be something that is natural and enjoyable and intimate for his people. And in, in, in one sense, you could say that sex is so powerful because God made it that it should only be used in the safe confines of covenantal marriage because it is so strong and powerful that it requires, in order for it to be used in a healthy way, it requires you to give yourself entirely to the other person. As long as you can pack up your toothbrush and go home the next day, or you can get in your car and go to your apartment the next day, or you can break things off and just move along your merry way, as long as that's the netting that is catching that relationship, it's not strong enough to deal with the power of sex. Sex is too weighty for a relationship like that. Sex is meant to be natural, enjoyable, and powerful, so much so that God authored it for a committed marriage between a man and woman. He actually said it this way, the two This is how powerful it is. They become one flesh. Now, by starting with this list, 
Paul addressed, like I said, the most open and shameless vice of the Roman and Greek world. And our world is swimming in this work of the flesh as well. It's found its way in lots of facets of life. We're just, I mean, try to live a day without having this in your face in some way or just in your own soul, your own desires, all of that. We're just constantly swimming in this world. It's, It's in our music, it's in our movies, it's in our curriculums, it's in our humor, it's in our advertising, obviously, it's everywhere. So what Paul is saying is, hey, we've got to remain vigilant in dealing with this very real tendency of our flesh. So allow me a moment to give you some tools to combat this area of the desires of the flesh. Paul said this to the Thessalonian church. He said, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That is God's will, and it is entirely possible. God has not set us up to fail. This is an entirely possible thing, and I want to give you a little bit of counsel on how to pursue holiness in this area of your life. The first thing that I would say, and this is really important, we... You know, if what we're looking at in this list is a list of the works of the flesh that we have tendencies to enter into, then what does that say? That says, I am capable of these things. This is a human experience. I need to walk with the Lord so that I don't fulfill these desires, but I could go here. And so my exhortation is, if that is true, why would you struggle alone in this area of life? Uh, You've got to reach out to other brothers and sisters in Christ who are also fighting for this kind of purity and holiness in their experience. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. He said, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But the, the, the way we often work is we feel a temptation, a desire. We maybe even enter into that temptation or desire, and we think, I'm the weirdo. I'm the only one that is experiencing this, but the Bible says otherwise. There is no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. So bring your temptations or your confusions or your failures into the light with trusted believers. My my advice is, if you're a man, bring them to light with other godly men, and if you're a woman, bring them to light with other godly women. Light is a powerful disinfectant. James said it this way in James 5, 16. He said, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I know this is a very personal area of life. It can be embarrassing to talk about, but uh, this is a life or death kind of thing for us. And so we've got to have an environment where we can say, I don't want to struggle alone in this area of my life. The second thing that I would say in this Uh, first realm of the flesh is that, and this goes for every area, but I think particularly here, I, I would say it like this. We should not be shocked by others and we should not be shocked by ourselves in this area of the desires of the flesh. You know, so many of us have experienced a total overexposure to sexual content. Uh, Or we've endured sexual trauma of some kind. A a lot of us, our views on sexuality have been shaped by people that are outside of the Christian faith, that, that haven't been thinking with a biblical grid. And others of us have been confused by people inside the church. This has generated all manners of sexual desire or lack of desire even in many people. 
And this is to be expected. The Bible teaches that we are depraved, that we're broken as human beings. And so sin has run its course on us. Addictions and broken desires have taken root in so many of our lives. And so I think for that reason, we should have compassion on each other. Our sexuality is, of course, important to God. It's important to society. Repentance is important. Submission to God is vital. But I I'm just trying to say this is also a discipleship and sanctification issue. You don't just receive Jesus and then bam, you're perfect in this area of your life forever. It's a process where God is continually working on an individual heart and soul. And I think especially in the time and generation that we're in, we have to give people the requisite time for God's spirit to help them see the truth and submit to the biblical standard that God has given. And then lastly, before I move on from this first section, we've got to receive the grace of God for a fresh start in Christ. You you remember that story where they brought the woman that was caught in adultery to Jesus? He said, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone, and he began writing on the ground, and everybody one by one, from the oldest to the least, left their presence until Jesus was alone in the woman, uh, with the woman. And then he said to her, I do not condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. I love that from Jesus. He did not dismiss her action, but he told her to sin no more. But he also did not ruin her with condemnation, but told her that he did not condemn her. That's the gospel. It deals with our shame, but sends us out free in Christ Jesus. All right, so that's the first section, sexual misalignment. Everybody take a breath now. Okay, we've covered that section. The next one, though, he says, is a a two-word section, two religious works of the flesh. I'm going to call this spiritual misalignment. Uh, He says, idolatry and sorcery, idolatry and sorcery. Now, idolatry, just at its face value, just basically means making an idol and substituting that thing that you've made for God. Uh, Sorcery, uh, you know, is like it sounds. It includes magic and witchcraft, uh, which was prevalent in their era and is prevalent in our era as well. Uh, But it comes from the Greek word pharmakia, uh, which makes room for the medical or drug-induced spiritual experiences that people in the ancient world were often seeking. Uh, we, We intoxicate ourselves, we drug ourselves to go into another dimension, to have a, a, a spiritual experience or enlightening experience. Uh, you know, microdosing to be able to see things in a different kind of way or whatever it might be. Now, to Paul, uh, in his mind, all of this was just a weak imitation or substitute for God. A drug-induced sorcery faking the work of the Spirit in a person's life. For, for, for Paul, he's kind of thinking like, why would you want the Walmart version of an, of an encounter with the true and living God through the gospel of Jesus, you can have the real thing. But there were those that were tempted to enter back into this kind of behavior. Now, you say the words idolatry and sorcery, and it's easy for us to feel like, well, I'm a million miles away from this one, and uh, these aren't, this is not an area, area, area of my life that needs any attention. 
But if you think about it, at their base level, we often fall into these temptations. We often, first of all, idolatry, make gods of things that are much less than the true and living God. And sorcery, we often try to control our false gods, control our lives. That's the essence of sorcery or magic. Uh, It's a desire to control someone or something, to control your environment or even to control yourself. So this type of spiritual misalignment, it basically says, I don't need to trust God. Instead of leaning not on their own understanding and in all their ways acknowledging him, the spiritually misaligned person grabs control for themselves. And we can all slip into this so easily. I don't need to pray about this. I've got this. I don't need to trust God. I've got this. I don't need his help. I've got this. I don't want to to allow him to lead my life. I want to control my life. This type of spiritual misalignment says, I make my own rules for relating to God. When you hear someone saying, this is how I do it, this is how I've discovered, this is how I, without being connected to anything found within God's word, you might have someone who is spiritually misaligned. Instead of looking to the trusted, reliable, outside source of God's word, the spiritually misaligned person creates their own ways of practicing spirituality. So one way to resist this area of temptation or work of the flesh is, I think I just have to say it like this, we got to worship God. We got to worship the real being, the true and living God. So many of our problems in life stem from a worship problem. Who or what are we worshiping? When we worship relationships, friendships, community, our spouse, our children, our grandchildren, we are putting pressure on them that they could never handle And we dry up because we never get from them what God could give to us. When we worship success or experiences or image, we become enslaved to those things. They become a vicious cycle of expectations for more and more, for better and better. And when we give our worship to education or career or possessions or beauty or intelligence or current events or any other thing, we only stand to be disappointed. Only God can handle our devotion and worship. And another way to resist this work of the flesh, I think, is to pursue spiritual depth with God. Uh, Don't tell yourself that you can produce high-quality spiritual experiences without God or without the direction of his word. Turn to him in his word. Press into the hard but biblical spiritual disciplines. Engage with other people in the church community who are seeking the very same thing. You see, this spirit, this, this desire, idolatry and sorcery, it's, it's the kind of mentality in a, in a Christian's life that says, you know, I know God has talked to me about prayer and Bible study and meditation on the word, scripture memorization, accountability, praying with other people, fasting, times of solitude. I know he talks about all of those things in his word, but I'm not going to engage in any of those and I'm gonna wait for the magic wand experience. I'm gonna have a breakthrough moment. And you might have a breakthrough here or there in your life, But the normal Christian experience of growth comes from saying, God, I submit to the pathways of transformation that you have authored in your word. And I will submit to those things. One more way to resist this work of the flesh is to encourage 
one another. Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 25, that we should not neglect to meet together and should encourage one another. And one area to encourage one another is in the age-old, time-tested worship practices of the Christian faith. It can't only be, uh, you know, pastors or church leaders who say, like, you know what, it's a good idea to go to church. Sometimes we have to say that to our friends as well. Hey, you know what, I, I missed you. Where are you? Hey, you, you, you haven't been around. And uh, where are you at? You haven't been in a group. Where, where are you at? I, I want to see you there. This is good for you, so where are you? All right, uh, let's move on from that one to the third category. I'm gonna call this societal misalignment because you could tell I'm going with the S thing this morning. We got sexual misalignment, spiritual misalignment, and now societal misalignment in verse 20 and 21. Um, Paul used five words up to this point in his list. This next section has eight words. So he's very descriptive of, of this particular section. I think probably because the Galatian church was very susceptible to this area. Let's uh, read these words. He talks about enmity, first of all. Uh, enmity is hatred and an inward feeling of hostility towards other people. He warned against strife. That's a type of discord that the Galatian church was in danger of engaging in. He warned against jealousy of other people. That's an obsession with what I don't possess that someone else does possess. Kind of a, a victim mentality can arise from this uh, work of the flesh. He warned against uh, fits of anger. Those are rage-filled outbursts that we give into in times of panic or stress. Uh, he warned against rivalries. Uh, which are fueled by selfish ambition and kind of like a me, me, me mentality. He warned, he says, against dissensions and divisions. This is a, a view which unnecessarily divides people, creates walls between camps and creates factions. And he warned against envy, which is always uh, a jealousy that is impure towards other people. I just want to remind you, this list was meant for the citizens of the church in Galatia. Our flesh is alive and well. We are capable of all these expressions of the old sinful nature. In fact, I think we could probably make the case that we are often most guilty or more tolerant of these eight words inside the church than some of the other things in the list. We, we might get our hackles up about sexual or religious sins and then simultaneously coexist with this barrage of attitudinal sins that Paul deals with uh, here. Uh, but these expressions of the flesh, they are highly destructive to life and community. Uh, these works of the flesh show up in things like long, raging, text messages. Have you ever gotten one of those? Where it's like, is this ever going to end? You know, it just keeps coming and coming. The person has just out, lost their mind, and it is a one-sided thing. Uh, they show up in those who refuse to work things out face-to-face, -face, but instead hide behind a deluge of angry and one-sided words. Uh, they show up in quiet slander and gossip about other people, talking about them in disparaging ways when they're not around. They show up when we have a hard time celebrating uh, wins and successes in somebody else's life, jealousy. 
They show up when we throw temper tantrums in the privacy of our own homes, when we're exasperated or at wit's end. They show up when we demean people in the way that we speak about them or bully someone because they don't agree with our perspectives. They show up when we command attention because we need people to notice us. They show up when we check out longingly the reactions to our latest witty social media post. They show up when we form odd religious groups that overemphasize one element of the faith over all others. They show up when we bounce from church to church because we don't like the people at our last one. They show up when we readily and quickly embrace voices that are clearly seeking a fight. They show up in all of these ways and many more. Now, attached to these forms of the flesh are various lies. Uh, One lie is that the other forms of the flesh in this list are the truly damaging ones, but that these are the acceptable ones. But this list levels all of humanity. It shows us, no, God is trying to work on on our outside and he's trying to work on our inside. He's trying to deal with us from the inside out. Another lie is that this is the real me and I gotta be true to myself. I gotta get this off of my chest. Well, I got news for you. If you're a Christian, the real you is like Jesus. And Jesus is like none of these things. So it's important to walk with the Spirit in order to to decrease in all of these. And another lie is that we could never change from the sins that are mentioned in these eight words. But we have to remember the power of God is at our disposal. Over time, as we walk with God, engaging in the means of grace he's supplied, directly bringing in our tendencies to him, we will change. Paul said, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So I think as a church, we would do well to remember these eight words that we just looked at in this third section. Uh, We should realize that Jesus came to deliver us from these works of the flesh. Okay, the last one that I want to mention to you though, number four is substance misalignment. Uh, It comes to us in the two words that he used at the end of the list, drunkenness and uh, orgies. Now, we've already dealt a little bit with substance abuse in the word sorcery because that comes from the word pharmakia, so as the idea of a drug-induced thing. Uh, But here he concludes with these two words. Now, drunkenness is clear, obvious to us what drunkenness is. It's not just partaking of alcohol, but partaking of it to excess where drunkenness comes into your life. And then the word orgies is a word which likely means drinking parties, so like a rager where people are just going beyond uh, and into just real revelry. Now, what Paul is doing is he's telling us what the works of the flesh look like. He's telling Christians in Galatia to watch out for the flesh. I think in Paul's mind, it's like the flesh is like this predator that is prowling, ready to strike or pounce at any moment, And so we have to be vigilant. I think in his mind, he's thinking of the flesh like a disease or a cancer that without regular treatment and attention will spread and cause great damage and even death. Uh, And so Paul is warning these believers, hey, you need to even watch out for drunkenness and orgies, these things that are trying to pull you in. And I think all too often, believers, we let down our guard in this final area that Paul describes. 
You know, many of us, when we came to Jesus, he rescued us radically from some of these elements. We were engaging in them habitually, and then God got a hold of our lives, and he set us free. But if we're not careful, the pressures of life begin to mount upon us, and we find ourselves medicating with too much alcohol or with substances that dull our edge. Or it's not the pressures of life that are upon you, but the successes of life that are mounting. And you find yourself passing the time with excess and indulgence. Soon you're drunk or you're high rather than filled with the Holy Spirit. Soon we're turning to overindulgence as a way to feel alive again or to numb the pains of life. Soon we make embarrassing decisions or compromise our integrity. We must not dismiss or minimize this manifestation of the flesh. We must encourage one another to sobriety and moderation. Like I said, many of us have experienced God's radical deliverance in our lives from things like these, but some of us with time slip back into private intoxication or public partying. You know, maybe the environment is a little more mature now than it used to be. Maybe it's a little more yacht rock than punk rock, but it's still sin. The sins of the teenage years grow up into sins of the senior years. And so Paul is telling us, watch out for this area of the flesh. Stay on guard. One weapon at our disposal for this is to reach out to our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. You know, they talk about children and how children develop. And every child is developing a set of family rules that are just intuitively known. They look at their parents' faces when disobedient. And if everything is permitted, then that's the family structure and rule. If there's great rage, then there's all this fear. But if there's just a healthy, no, that's not what we do in this family. If there's a healthy dealing with it, the child begins to grow up with that sense. Here's what is acceptable in my family. Here's what is unacceptable in my family. And they, cre- they, they generate this health and this balance within. In a sense, this is what we need in the body of Christ. We have to be able to look at each other and say, no, this is not one of the things that we do. We're different. We don't need these elements in our lives. We have great sympathy for those who enter into them. We have great compassion and moments of weakness in a person's life, even the life of a believer. We understand that the pressures of life are intense and can mount upon an individual soul, but it is good for us to read the room and be able to say, yeah, this is not the behavior that we accept. We want to be different. We want to rise above. And sometimes you have to reach out to your brothers and sisters in Christ in this area. And this might be embarrassing for some of you. Some of you, it looks like your life is all together, that you're doing really well. And it's hard for you to admit to another brother or sister in Christ, I have gone too far. I am, I am enslaved now to something that I never thought I would be enslaved to. But it's important to get it and into the light rather than quietly and eventually loudly allow this work of the flesh to destroy you. So we need the Christian community. 
not highly permissive Christians who don't live according to scripture, not highly legalistic Christians who ban far more than the Bible does, but godly and supportive believers who can help you avoid substance misalignment. I'd also suggest that we engage in lots of incarnational ministry in this area. You know, Jesus, when he came to us, he didn't come and then say, you know, you guys have made a big mess of this world. You have been made a big mess of this life. And everything that you're dealing with now, you've had it coming to you. No, Jesus took on our burdens. He knew that it was our fault. He knew that sin had run rampant within us, but he took on our burdens and did what he could, even though he knew the truth of the situation, to fix and remedy our lives. And all of these works of the flesh, especially and including uh, drunkenness and substance abuse, they wreak havoc on a society and lives are broken, left behind. Bodies are broken, minds are broken, left behind. And the Christian church, we should not be the ones who stand back and say, look at what you did to yourself, you had it coming to you. But instead, like Jesus, we should bear the burdens of others and incarnationally minister in the world that we live in. And I'm so glad as a church that much of this is happening in our midst. And finally, for those of you who have a loved one who is steeped in addiction, I just want to give you an encouragement and exhortation to regularly and faithfully pray for that person for a long time. The reason I say for a long time is because I've seen firsthand in my own life God answer these prayers many times, but it's always taken so much longer than I wanted it to take. The, the, these elements can get a stranglehold on a person's life. And as you pray for people in your life who are struggling with addiction, I'd encourage you to pray for more than just a release from their addiction, but pray for a revelation of Jesus. That's gonna ultimately be the thing that gives them the motivation, the impetus, the drive to be set free. Christ will set them free as they walk with him and receive his gospel. All right, next time we're in Galatians, we're gonna think about a much better list, the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, God's Spirit transforms us to look more like Jesus. Uh, and that's how these works of the flesh are overcome. It doesn't happen by simply identifying the works of the flesh and just saying, I'm not gonna do these things. It comes by walking in the Spirit, as we're going to see next week. So you don't wanna miss that study. Uh, when David was young, you might remember before he defeated Goliath, he had an interview with King Saul. Uh, Saul said to him, how are you going to go defeat Goliath? You're just a boy. You're just a young man. And this guy has been a warrior since the time he was a boy or a young man. And David told Saul, he said, you know, the Lord, when I was a shepherd of my father's sheep, he gave me victory. There was a time where a lion attacked my dad's sheep and I rose up and God empowered me and I killed the lion. There was a time a bear rose up and to attack the sheep and I got up and I filled with the spirit, killed the bear. And God who gave me a victory over the lion and over the bear will give me a victory over Goliath, over this man of war. And I think, my hope and prayer is that the way we could look at a list like this is to remember what we celebrated last weekend. 
Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so that if we believe in him, we have new and everlasting life. In our past as Christians, there is this insane victory that God has given to us. So when we look at a list like this, we should recognize the same God who gave me that victory in the past, he can continue to give me victory over these elements of my life. I believe that a list like this can make the Christian life exciting again for some of you. I think a lot of us have set such a low bar on what the Christian experience is that Christianity is just boring. But when you look at a list like this and let it peer back into your soul, it shows you where the Spirit is trying to take you and the stuff that the Spirit is trying to address. And it makes you realize this is such a beautiful adventure that I get to go on with the Holy Spirit of God. All right, let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you have done for us. And our prayer, Lord, is that you would sequentially, increasingly, moment by moment, step by step, day by day, infuse us with that new grace and mercy so that we could see a steady and sure victory over the elements of the flesh that we just read of in this list. Help us, Lord, not to act as if they have no sway on us individually. Help us not to suppress these things and not look them in the eye. But Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would grow and shape us more and more to look not like this, but like Jesus. So we pray that you do it in our lives. Thank you for this glorious gospel. We love you. In Jesus' name, we pray together, amen.